the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed the Bob France Authority. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for getting together with us at 7 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Thursday, the 15th morning of the 11th month of the year of our Lord, 2018. We have a packed show for you today. Coming up, I'm really, really looking forward to talking to my first guest, probably someone you've never heard of before. Uh, and that's what makes it a really, really interesting conversation. He's 20 years old. He's a brand new filmmaker an independent filmmaker, to be precise, who has put together a documentary that's going to be screening in Lorraine tomorrow night at the Lorraine Palace Theater out in Lorraine County. That's near my stomping ground, so uh, it's easy and convenient for me. But um, Nick Stumphauser is his name, and he's got a, uh, a movie out that I think you're going to be very, very interested in. It's called How to Kill 14 People Without Saying a Word. That's right. It's a documentary that some are saying is worthy of the likes of Dinesh D'Souza. And if you've seen if you have seen any of um, uh, Dinesh D'Souza's documentaries, you know that's high praise indeed. So we're going to talk to him about what he means about how to kill 14 people without saying a word. Uh, this is a conservative approach. Uh, I can tell you that. Uh, I have seen the trailer for it, and I know all about the story that it is centered on, and I could not agree with the premise more. You're going to want to listen to this conversation, and hopefully you're going to want to see this movie. So Nick Stumphauser is coming on at uh, 9.35 to talk about that. At 10.05, our friend Daniel Horowitz will visit with us to talk about the folly in his mind, and I think in some others as well, of this bipartisan agreement that is now being championed by President Trump regarding criminal justice reform. Yesterday, the president laid out his case for criminal justice reform, for shortening sentences for drug felons, for um, 
uh, uh, changing the three strike rule from you know uh, from a lifetime in prison after your third strike to twenty five years, and much much more. Uh, a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are celebrating this. Daniel is not one of them. I am not either. To be honest with you. I am really, really, really tired of coddling criminals. I'm really, really tired of pointing to social ills as an excuse for uh, violent crimes or crimes that may not be violent in their own nature, but that do indeed make violence necessary to provide access to those. And, of course, I'm speaking about the drug trafficking and the drug trade. I'll get into more detail on this with Daniel coming up at um, uh, uh, 10.05 this morning. But just suffice it to say, if you think when you buy some heroin from somebody, you give him money, he gives you your fix, uh, that, and since you didn't commit a crime, you didn't commit a violent crime there, nobody punched anybody or shot anybody, that you committed a nonviolent crime. Sorry. No. Not that simple. You have no idea how much violence was necessary to get that product from its origination point to your hands. Violence is committed at every single step of the drug trafficking industry. And the idea that we're going to continue to call these nonviolent crimes is only going to um, exacerbate the problem. It's going to encourage and embolden drug traffickers to continue their, uh, their, their horrific work. And let's just be honest with it. That's what it's going to do. What the president just did yesterday, in fact, essentially, it's not identical because it's not, there's not a constitutional amendment. It, uh, but it does tie judges' hands in much the same way that issue one in the state of Ohio that we just defeated last Tuesday did. We fought tooth and nail against that because it was absolutely a horrific idea to have, you know, such lenient and lax sentencing guidelines, uh, not guidelines, but uh, but sentencing uh, uh, orders, if you will, um, for drug traffickers, especially when you're talking about the possession of some really, really high amounts that are very, very deadly in terms of uh, certain types of drugs. We defeated that, working very hard to do so on Tuesday in Ohio, and now it looks like it's on its way, a form of it, uh, on the national stage. Here's a little bit of what the president had to say about this yesterday, and it's, you know, look, uh, we know how this is. You know the drill if you listen to the show. I have the president's back 99% of the time. Sometimes I disagree with him. This is one of those times. The legislation I'm supporting today contains many significant reforms, including the following. First, it will provide new incentives for low-risk inmates to learn the skills they need to find employment, avoid old habits, and follow the law when they're released from prison. That's a nice, uh, that's a nice soundbite, and I'm okay with what's in that soundbite. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Yes, there should be incentives to people. Maybe you can get some time knocked off of your sentence if you are indeed in those trade skill programs and proving, proving that you are not going back to the old way of life. I can get with that. That's okay. In and of itself, I'm fine with that sentencing quote-unquote reform. But there's so much more than that. Americans from across the political spectrum can unite around prison reform legislation that will reduce crime while giving our fellow citizens a chance at redemption. Disagree wholeheartedly. It's not going to reduce crime. It's going to increase crime. When you go easier on criminals, criminals take the next step. When you go, let's put it to you this way, very simply. If you were to change 
the laws and change murder. I'm not saying every drug crime is a murder. This is just for the sake of comparison. If murder was reduced to you, the, the maximum amount of time you can serve in prison for a murder was reduced to five years, as opposed to life in prison or the death penalty, do you think the murder rate would go up or down? Very simple. The murder rate would go up. And if you don't like the comparison because you still don't believe me when I say I'm not trying to compare drug trafficking to murder, okay, shoplifting. Okay, shoplifting. If the new policy was nobody can be arrested and go to jail for shoplifting, you can only get a, a, a fine and, and maybe a, a short term of probation. Do you think the rate of shoplifting would go up or down? If drunk driving penalties were significantly lessened, do you think that the number of people drinking and driving will go up or down? This isn't hard. You reduce the penalties for criminal actions, and criminals are emboldened. Moreover, you have non-criminals who won't be afraid of committing that first criminal act. Then you create more criminals. If you knew that the, the penalties for drunk driving were much less than what they are now because of an act of Congress signed by the president, you might just be, uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure if I'm okay to drive. All right, I'm pretty sure. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. Yeah, I might wreck, but uh, as long as I get home and don't wreck it, I mean, even if I get pulled over, all they're going to do is give me a little tiny slap on the wrist. I keep my license. Uh, they, they, they give me a, a small fine. You understand the point? Lessen the penalties. More people choose to break the law. Lessen the penalties, and those who already break the law are emboldened to break it at a more frequent rate. That's just common sense. It's one of the things I don't like about this, and I heard it yesterday, and I know that here's more from the president. It will provide new incentives for low-risk inmates to learn the skills they need to find employment, avoid old habits, and follow the law when they're released from prison. These incentives will encourage them to participate in vocational training, educational coursework, and faith-based programs. All right, uh, that's a little bit similar to the previous cut. It added a little bit more to the end. Okay, great. Again, vocational education training I'm fine with. And if those people are incentivized by having a little bit of time knocked off their sentence, I'm okay with that. But across the board, uh, reduced sentences and across the board, lax enforcement of the laws regarding drug trafficking in the United States, to me, is an absolute recipe for disaster. Some people got caught up in situations that were very bad. I give an example of Mrs. Alice Johnson, who served 21 years, and she had, I think, another 25 or so to go. So she would have been in there for close to 50 years for something that other people go in and they get slapped on the wrist, which is also wrong, by the way, which is also wrong. The president's trying to go two ways here. (laughs) She was sentenced too harshly, and other people weren't sentenced harshly enough. That's also wrong. Well, first of all, the Alice Johnson narrative, if you don't know what we're talking about, this was the woman who was freed, as the president said, as a, quote, nonviolent first-time drug offender, given a super stiff sentence. She was freed after um, Kim Kardashian went to the White House to plead her case. And the president, I think, in trying to reach out and extend a, you know, a, a friendly gesture, 
said, yeah, okay, we're going to let her out. And the story is, little old lady with five children hit hard times in the 1990s, fell in with the wrong crowd, and needed to make ends meet, so she started moving drugs. That's the narrative. It is not accurate. It's not full and complete. The Federalist wrote a piece, and I'm going to have to pull it up, the Federalist wrote a piece back in the day, one of the day, what am I saying? Back back in June or whatever when all this went down with Kim Kardashian. And here it is. I got it in front of me. Yeah, um, the the Federalist wrote a piece about the, the characterization of Alice Johnson's crimes is wrong. She deserved punishment. Uh, and, and it lays out some of the details that did not get into the short sound bites uh, of the president and of those who uh, supported letting uh, her out of prison. And I'm not saying she absolutely shouldn't have been. But the idea that we can that we can, um, what's the word I'm looking for, that we can legitimize the need for some people to commit crimes because they fall on hard times is simply wrong. It is crazy. We cannot just say, you know, the laws don't count if you're in a bad place. Stealing is okay if you're really, really poor. Dealing drugs is okay if you're really, really poor. Dealing drugs is okay if you're really, really uneducated. Well, who told you to drop out of school? I mean, again, this is this is just a you know to me. While wanting to cease or not cease, but to deal with the issue of prison overcrowding, I get that and I'm okay with that. You want to stop and and and, and minimize that problem? I get that. But we cannot put the public safeties, or excuse me, the public's safety in jeopardy in the process. We cannot do that. Among other changes, it rolls back some of the provisions of the Clinton crime law that disproportionately harmed the African-American community. And here we go. And here we go. If you think that the president isn't playing politics to some degree with this decision to jump on board with the bipartisan effort in Congress to reform our prisons, and our criminal justice system. If you don't think there's some element of this aimed at trying to draw some of the black vote, then you're just not paying attention. It's a very easy to to identify and recognize move because it's a move that Democrats have played forever. It's a move they've made forever. They know full well if they don't get 90% of the vote in any national election from the black community, they lose that election. It's just that simple. If it gets down to 87, 86, 85 percent, they're done. They're in serious trouble. Peter Kirsten now said they'd go the way of the Whig Party, and I think he's right. And President Trump, recognizing that, says, yeah, well, uh, look at us. Bill Clinton's uh, uh, crime laws back in the 1990s put more African Americans in prison, that bad guy. I am going to set more of them free. If you don't think that's an attempt to get black votes for the Republican Party, then you're you're just not paying attention. Again, the Democrats have done that. It is absolutely a dangerous, dangerous thing. And not hit it. And by the way, it should have absolutely zero to do with race. It is dangerous, in my view, to weaken our sentencing laws and sentencing guidelines, weaken our, our, our application of the rule of law, all to appease part of the community for the purpose of votes. I don't care if you're black, white, green, or brown, no matter what you do, if you are breaking the laws and you are participating in the drug trafficking industry, there is violence that is being 
uh, done on your behalf. There is violence that you are participating in, whether or not you are stabbing, shooting, or punching, or stealing, or robbing, or not. It, it is a very violent trade. It's a very violent industry, and it cannot be allowed to be normalized by our laws. So I got that coming up. And I'm really looking forward to uh, that conversation with Daniel Horowitz. I guess I just did a lot of the conversation myself, but I'm a I'm a I'm a novice at this. Daniel Horowitz is an expert. He wrote a great piece for Conservative Review about it, and we'll talk about that at 10:05. All right, you want to get in? We are uh, open for you for a segment here to get some phone calls in at two one six nine zero one zero nine four five triple eight two eight one eleven ten. If you agree or disagree, go ahead and hit me up now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. All right, 926 now. We continue the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Um, just going to hit this very, very briefly because uh, I don't know where the story is going to go, and he doesn't deserve that much of our attention. But some are calling this the sweetest revenge for Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, of course, had to fight off all of these allegations of sexual misconduct. And as a matter of fact, one, a, a charge of gang rape on the regular Gang rape on a on a on a virtually a weekend basis. This, of course, was Julie Swetnick, the quote unquote client uh, that was represented by Michael Avenatti, who has been President Trump's one of President Trump's worst critics. And when I say worst, I don't mean just in things that he says. I mean just he's he's one of the worst human beings, honestly, alive. Michael Avenatti, who represented uh, Stormy Daniels, and by the way, lost <laughs> bigly. To the president in his uh, in his lawsuit uh, against the president, trying to get more money for himself and for his porn star client, Michael Avenatti uh, ended up having to pay a ton of attorneys' fees for the president in the uh, resolution of that case. But at any rate, what he did to Brett Kavanaugh is inf- unforgivable, as he championed himself as this defender of women and all, all women who uh, allege abuse and allege sexual assault and so on and so forth deserve to be believed and all of these kinds of things. Um, Michael Avenatti uh, was in police custody last night. He was in police custody after being alleged um, uh, to have assaulted a woman. His estranged wife, according to the report, his estranged wife originally uh, uh, filed for a protective order, and she had bruises on her face. Apparently, they made it look like she had been beaten. TMZ first reported uh, this uh, story last night. It ended up making its way to the mainstream news just about everywhere in these domestic violence uh, allegation. They cited law enforcement sources for the claim that the woman filed for felony uh, filed a felony domestic violence report against Avenatti. And according to that report, the woman was seen running out of a high-end apartment complex in Century City in Los Angeles. She was on a sidewalk with sunglasses covering her eyes and screaming, I can't believe you did this to me, into a cell phone. Security reportedly ushered into the building, after which Avenatti appeared and chased her while allegedly claiming, she hit me first, she hit me first. This is bull blank. This is blanking bull blank. TMZ again said one witness um, said her face was swollen and bruised. After the report surfaced, the AP confirmed that Avenatti was indeed in police custody, and TMZ had earlier reported that the woman was Avenatti's ex-wife or estranged wife, but she denied that account completely, saying she had not seen him in several months. 
TMZ then changed the report simply to read that an unidentified woman made the report against Avenatti. So regardless of who it was, he was arrested and charged with this Domestic Violence Act literally just a month or so after um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was seated on the Supreme Court despite his best efforts to destroy his life on the basis of, quote, believing survivors of assault and abuse, end quote. To say that the irony is thick and perhaps a little bit no, I won't say it's great. I won't say it's delicious. I was going to say the irony is delicious, but if a woman really got abused here, there's nothing wonderful or delicious about that story. It's horrific. But to say that he should pay the same price that he tried uh, to force on an innocent man would be obviously an understatement. All right, it's 930. We'll get news now and your phone calls. No, correction. We're going to talk to Nick Stumphauser, local filmmaker uh, who's got a film that is uh, being uh, air or shown tomorrow night in Lorraine, is going to be joining us next. How to Kill 14 people without saying a word. Nick Stumphauser, the uh, creator of that movie, will join us next right here on AM 1420 The Answer. Nine thirty-five. Now the Bob France Authority continuing on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Thanks for being uh, with us. Uh, if you didn't hear Hugh Hewitt this morning, make note of it. I will be sitting in for Hugh tomorrow, so it will be a five-hour Francathon starting at six a.m. and going until eleven. We'll do the Hugh uh, program, the Hewitt program, rather from six to nine, and then be here for our regular routine uh, tomorrow at nine o'clock. We're very much looking forward to that. Coming up. Uh, speaking of looking forward, I am looking forward to speaking with uh, the brilliant Daniel Horowitz, uh, senior editor. A conservative review and the author of Stolen Sovereignty. He'll be joining me at about 10.10 to discuss this criminal justice reform issue that the president announced yesterday at a press conference, bipartisan support of Congress, to reform our criminal justice system and essentially uh, let people out of jail for free. Uh, they think somehow that's going to help reduce crime in the United States, and I think they are just this side of insane. And when I say they, they, I am speaking of both Democrats and Republicans and, yes, our president. I think this is a recipe for disaster. But we'll get to that then. For now, I want to talk about a different kind of crime. In particular, we're talking about terrorism. And more specifically, we're talking about a terrorist act that was uh, committed to a couple of years ago in San Bernardino, California, that resulted in the deaths of 14 people. That is the subject of a an independent movie that is being put out or that has been put out and is being shown in select theaters uh, around the Midwest uh, called How to Kill 14 People Without Saying a Word. The filmmaker is a 20-year-old from Michigan. Now, technically not from Michigan. He is in Michigan, uh, but he is from Lorraine. So he's a local Northeast Ohio success story. His name is Nick Stumhauser. He joins us now right here on AM 1420. The answer, Nick, good morning, sir. How are you? Doing just fine, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on. This is a uh, phenomenal uh, uh, concept. As I've uh, since I've learned about this a couple of days ago, and I've taken a look at the trailer for your movie, and I've seen what it's all about. And uh, man, first of all, before we get into the details of it, congratulations! It's not easy. I wouldn't imagine. I'm not in your industry, but at the age of 20, to have a documentary like this uh, put out and to be uh, and to be shown in theaters across, and I'm assuming the Midwest. I've taken a look at your travel schedule, I and mean, it's a great accomplishment. At the age of 20 yeah thank you it's been anything but easy but it's definitely been worth it as it gains traction i'm looking forward to changing hearts and minds 
Now, uh, tell me about your background, Nick. Obviously, as I said, I know your parents uh, still live in Lorraine, and you're from Lorraine, but you live in Michigan now. Tell me about your education background. How'd you get into film? So I started making films as a young kid, around seven or eight. It was just a you know point-and-shoot camera and Windows movie maker. And I've always been passionate about film, and I want to be uh, you know, a blockbuster movie director like J.J. Abrams or Christopher Nolan, but... Uh, I went to school at the Motion Picture Institute instead of going to a university, so I went to a trade school for film. And about halfway through, I went to UC Berkeley and uh, was with Milo and his crew the night that Antifa burned down Sproul Plaza. And even though I'm not a documentary filmmaker, that night I knew I had to tell this story. I had to use my abilities as a filmmaker to tell this story. And that night the film was born. Wow, that that's a that's an amazing story. So you said you were there at Cal Berkeley when Milo Yiannopoulos came and uh, and Antifa, as you said, attacked and vandalized and burned. Uh, what what did you think when when you watched all that happen? I was pretty shook up. So I was with Milo and his crew, and we had to be evacuated from Martin Luther King Building because Antifa was throwing M80s at us. They were shooting Roman candles uh, at the glass underneath. They had ripped apart the steel barricade and smashed the steel barricade through the glass underneath the window or underneath the balcony that I was standing on, Mm -hmm. uh, and they flooded the building. And so uh, I had to be evacuated with uh, Milo and his crew. And watching that happen, you know, having eggs and M80s thrown at me and, and, and just seeing what looked like a militia march down the streets of Sproul Plaza, it really shook me up, and it that sort of, you know, why I decided to make the film was because of that night. I saw how bad things had gone. Nick, um, you, um, you're from Lorraine. Well, actually, before I get into your background there, as far as that part of this goes, um, correct me if I'm wrong, because a lot of these attacks that try to stop conservative speakers on campuses start to run together. There are so many of them. Was that the one in which the police were told to stand down and let them, uh, uh, rather than confront those who were throwing those uh, M80s and other things at you guys because they didn't want to escalate? I'm glad you brought that up. That is the exact moment that the police were told to stand down. So I, I actually have footage of fleets of riot-clad policemen and women who could not do anything. And a, a good friend of mine, Randy Sutton, told me a story. Uh, he's uh, CEO of the Wounded Blue, and... He was telling me a story how because these police were told by an impotent governor of California, of Berkeley, um, to stand down, there was uh, people who were crawling on the ground having been beaten to a pulp by Antifa toward the police who were told to enter the, the building, close the door, and do not let anyone inside. And, and so it was a horrific uh, display of, of law and order. We're talking to Nick Stumphauser. He is an independent filmmaker. Again, I, I keep saying you you are from Lorraine. I know your parents live in Lorraine. Were you born and did you go to the Lorraine school system? No. So I was uh, born in Alabama, and I spent a little bit of uh, my early years in Lorraine. My parents uh, and my grandparents and great-grandparents, the Stumphausers and the Dovins, uh, are all from here in Lorraine. And so all growing up, I would come back here for you know, Christmas and Easter and, and weddings and funerals and everything in between. So I, I spent a lot of my childhood visiting family up here in Lorraine. And then uh, in 2017, 
I released two, uh, 2017, 2018, I released two award-winning films and uh, short films and showed them at the Lorraine Palace Theater as well. Wonderful. The reason I asked about the Lorraine part is I thought you were uh, you were from Lorraine yourself and grew up in Lorraine because it's not exa- there aren't a whole lot of conservative minded people who come out of the city of Lorraine. It is about as blue as blue gets, about as liberal as liberal gets. So, uh, so I was going to ask you how you formed your political opinions, but uh, let's move on and talk about the film now. Uh, obviously, it's a very attention-grabbing title, and I suppose that's the idea. Uh, it grabbed mine when I heard about it, How to Kill 14 People Without Saying a Word. I've done a little bit of the research, so I know what, the, what all of that means, but tell everybody who's listening right now uh, what that title means. Sure. Well, th- there's two parts to it. As you introduced the film, it was you know the, the terrorist attack that happened in San Bernardino where Saeed Rizwan Farouk and his wife, Tashfin Malik, um, were... Uh, employees at the Inland Regional Center, and they slaughtered 14 of their co-workers at a Christmas party. And this could have been prevented, which is where the second half of the title comes in, without saying a word, because uh, there were neighbors, there were two specific neighbors, a husband and a wife of these terrorists, and they were suspicious. They uh, saw a lot of packages coming into the home, um, a lot of suspicious activity occurring, and they didn't say anything because they did not want to be called Islamophobic. Now, if they had, then they would have seen uh, CCTV footage of Saeed Farouk and his wife at the Riverside Magnum gun range practicing their marksmanship before they went and shot their co-workers. They would have found about 1,600 rounds of ammunition in their garage or uh, pipe bombs that were uh, being built in an effort to kill uh, the remainder of their employees. But they didn't say anything because they, they were afraid to, to be labeled racist, you know. And so when I learned about this, I, I wanted to know why were they afraid? Not just, you know, ah, they should have said something, but why didn't they? Why were they afraid? And, and I learned that the answer to that question is the same answer as to why was Brett Kavanaugh delayed in becoming a Supreme Court justice? Why was Parkland allowed to happen? You know, why did Charlie Hebdo happen? Why did uh, the Bataclan shooting happen? All of these, not all, but but a substantial amount of these terrorist attacks are linked to that specific answer. Um, it, it really uh, is an astounding thing. I remember when it all happened and learning a little bit later on about the neighbors who were afraid to speak. And uh, and, and it, it kind of is a commentary, isn't it, um, uh, widespread across this country that people are afraid. You know, we were we were asked by Barack Obama for eight years, if you see something, say something. Um, and, and anytime somebody says something, it turns out very, very bad for them. I'm sure you recall the, uh, the, the English teacher down in Texas who, uh, said something when he was concerned about this briefcase that one of his students was carrying that had a bunch of wires protruding from it and was ticking on the inside. Uh, it turns out to be, of course, what we now know, who, a kid who can be known as the clock kid who basically dismantled a store bought radio and made it his science project. He was trying to freak people out. It worked. And the English teacher was branded an Islamophobe and a racist and so on and so forth. And his life was never the same. So this is, exactly how terrorism spreads does it not the they they rely upon nick the 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 silence of people because they know if they say something and are wrong and even if they're right how come you suspected them why did you profile them this is i mean this is this is an ongoing problem from one end of this country to the other well isn't it interesting how the victims are the ones who aren't allowed to talk about it you know when i premiered this film in in howell michigan on the 27th of october 
they didn't even want to put the title on the marquee. Now, luckily, uh, Chris Pataki's an upstanding gentleman at the Lorraine Palace Theater, and he's going to put the title up on the marquee because uh, he's not afraid of, of freedom of speech in the First Amendment. But back in Howell, they, they didn't want to do that because they, they were afraid of uh, the implications about the content of the film. People are calling me a racist. They're saying I'm a white supremacist. And, and we're at a point now where we can't even talk about the people who are afraid to talk about the problem. That's where we're at. That's uh, that's very well said. Nick Stumphauser, that's why he's an independent filmmaker, and his film is called How to Kill 14 People Without Saying a Word, uh, and that's exactly what, what continues to happen. What has been the reception of your film? Well, there's been a, a, about two two sides of it. You know, you have the people who, are, like I said, are, are slandering me, calling me white supremacist or a Nazi, saying don't show this film, Uh Chris has already gotten a phone call that said, you know, don't show this white supremacist film at the Lorraine Theater. Uh, it's not a white supremacist film. I shouldn't even have to say that. Um, and then there's the people who are sick and tired of being hushed up, of feeling like they can't express themselves. These are the people who voted for Donald Trump. These are the people who said enough is enough. And when they watch the film, they get fired up and, and they're, they're inspired and they really enjoy their experience. Um, tell me how you did get it into the Lorraine Palace Theater then, given the, the that pushback, because I can certainly, it's, again, I, you know, I was going to talk about the, you know, the liberal nature of the city in which your, uh, you know, your parents live. <laughs> it's also liberal in terms of, uh, the populace and whether or not they would want to come out and see a movie in this theater. So how did you convince, uh, the, the Palace Theater to play it? And what kind of, uh, what kind of crowd are you expecting tomorrow night? Well, like I said, Chris Pataki is, a, is an upstanding guy, and he respects the First Amendment. And, you know, he sees this as, as me ex- using my freedom of expression, my freedom of speech to, to talk about a problem. So because I had shown uh, my two award-winning short films at the Palace Theater uh, in the past, he was more than happy to arrange a date for me to, to show the film here. As for who I expect to attend, I have I know I have a lot of my my local family here, but I think there's going to be um, I think there's going to be a good turnout of, of people who, like I said, uh, I don't I actually don't think it's as much of a minority as people think. I just think they're silent. And uh, I hope when that you have this sort. Of, no, I'm sorry. Continue, yeah, please. No, just when you have that you know rallying cry to say like you know look I will say what what you're too afraid to say then it. And it gives them that courage. There's a quote that basically, uh, I can't remember the gentleman who said it, but um, until, you know, one man lays down his life for patriotism, then, it, you know, it's not easy for anyone else to do it. And I'm not trying to, you know, pretend like I'm a martyr, but I do want to say, you know, be the voice of these people who feel silent and give them the courage to, to be able to stand up and say the things that they're afraid to say for fear of, of being called these horrible names. Nick, I understand what you're saying, uh, and I won't confer martyrdom on you either, but I will give you courage, credit for courage, because it, it, it does take a lot of courage to do exactly this, to say, look, I'm going to make a film that's going to upset a lot of people. It's about 
a, a situation that happened because people were afraid to do something or say something that killed a lot of people for crying out loud. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take the 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 step here and be brave enough to 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 make this film to show this film, knowing I'm gonna be called names, and I'm gonna trust that people will say, you know, maybe if he can do it, I can do it. And that doesn't mean make a film, but I can support it. I can come to it. I can watch it. I can spread the word. I can learn a little bit more about uh, the political correctness in this country right now that demands that people remain silent even if they see threats materializing before their very eyes because they're afraid of being called names you're taking this on yourself and i think uh, i think that is a courageous thing to do and i and i hope it's a smashing success not just in lorraine but everywhere that you show this um give us the specifics lorraine palace theater what time tomorrow night doors open at six thirty tomorrow night show starts at seven thirty. you can get tickets online or at the door and uh, what's yeah, the website what's the website to get the tickets online Yes, yeah, so you're going to go to either LorrainePalace.org or HowToKill14People.com, either one. If you even just search the title of the movie or Lorraine Palace Theater, all arrows will point toward getting tickets to this film. So I, I really do hope to see a lot of Lorraineites there. I have uh, I have it in front of me right now, the website, HowToKill14People.com. Uh, you really need to check this out. Uh, watch the trailer for yourself if you'd like. I can't play the trailer. There is some language, and we should probably tell everybody that as well, because this is a documentary, and there's a lot of raw emotion expressed in this by a lot of people, and so there is some language, so be prepared for that. That's why I'm not playing the trailer on the air, but uh, but I, I want people to read it and or read about this and watch this trailer for themselves. Go to the website, HowToKill14People.com. And if you've got some time tomorrow, you've got a couple of hours, uh, and you're near Lorraine, get out to Lorraine and, uh, uh, and watch this film and support an independent filmmaker, a local Northeast Ohio uh, native, uh, family native, um, and, uh, and, and, and educate yourself a little bit about how PC is literally killing people in the United States. Uh, great, uh, great to meet you and to talk with you, Nick. I hope you have a fantastic turnout tomorrow night. And, uh, and, and next time you have a film project or anything of that nature, I'd love to talk with you again. So grateful for your time, Bob. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. Good luck to you. Nick Stumphauser, again, local filmmaker or his family is a local uh, family, and uh, he's a 20-year-old independent filmmaker that has put together this uh, documentary, which, again, is being called Worthy of Dinesh D'Souza. And nobody makes political documentaries as well as Dinesh D'Souza. That means something to have that comparison. So, again, that's tomorrow night, 6.30, doors open, 7.30 is showtime at the Lorraine Palace Theater for How to Kill 14 People Without Saying a Word. 9.52 now. We'll get a quick time out here, check our traffic, come right back, and hopefully get some of your phone calls before Daniel Horowitz joins us at about 10.10 right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Six. All right, 9.55, now the Bob France Authority. Short segment here on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks again to Nick uh, Stumphauser. I would go to that event myself tomorrow uh, if I did not have a pre-arranged, well, pre-arranged, when I say pre-scheduled or uh, uh, basketball event for my, uh, for my high school son tomorrow uh, in the evening. But uh, I hope he gets a great turnout there. It's a fantastic message. Uh, that this, I have not seen the film obviously yet. Uh, it's being screened tomorrow. Uh, but I've seen the trailer and I have read enough about it to know what the message is. And the message is great. Political correctness, fear of speaking out and speaking up because you don't want to be offensive to people. That's political correctness. Because you don't want to be accused of bigotry. That's political correctness. Got 14 people killed. 
And it's getting more and more people killed every day. Every day. Every day that somebody sees something and doesn't say something for fear of being called an Islamophobe or a bigot or this or that or the other, every day, then that, per, that, that individual, if they are indeed up to no good, is, is allowed to continue their acts and their preparation and their building and their, uh, you know, their targeting and so on and so forth every single day. So it's a, such an important message, and I really hope people come out and see that tomorrow night at the Lorraine Palace Theater. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk to Daniel Horowitz about prison reform. Prison reform has been discussed by members of both parties for quite some time. Uh, it has not been embraced by the Trump administration until yesterday, in large part because the former Attorney General of the United States, the man in charge of the Department of Justice, Jeff Sessions, absolutely opposed the First Steps Act, absolutely opposed weakening the criminal justice system, weakening the the crime laws, weakening the sentencing guidelines, and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you what, while I, like a lot of other people, were very critical of Jeff Sessions as it pertains to his handling of the Mueller investigation or his inability to handle the Mueller investigation or handle anything with respect to Russia and so on and so forth, um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions was stalwart on the issue of public safety as it pertains to crime and drugs in the United States. And I think it's one of the reasons that President Trump finally fired him. Because the president wanted to act on prison reform. And I think there's a lot of politicking to that. I don't think Jeff Sessions was interested in the politics of it. I think Jeff Sessions just wanted to keep people safe. And oh, by the way, since the president made a point of talking about the racial component of all Among of this. Among other changes, it rolls back some of the provisions of the Clinton crime law that disproportionately harmed the African-American community. I would, like to, I would like to ask the following question. When crime rises because of the lenient drug uh, sentences that are going to be uh, handed out as a result of this, when crime rises, which community do you think is going to be most dispropor- disproportionately harmed? And the answer is the black community. If there is a disproportionate amount of crime being committed by blacks in the criminal justice system, you do realize, right, that 80 to 90% of the victims of violent black crime are other blacks. So if the president is trying to look out for the African-American community, weakening the, the, the drug laws and weakening the prison laws and the prison uh, 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 sensing laws, and prison reform is not going to help the black community. It's going to create a lot more black victims, sadly. The president was joined by many of those legislators at the White House to announce support for the First Steps Act, designed to give inmates a second chance at life after prison. The president says a key pillar of the bill to motivate inmates. To learn the skills they need to find employment, avoid old habits, and follow the law when they're released from prison. It will also strengthen sentencing guidelines for more violent offenders. While some Democrats say the bill doesn't go far enough, the president urges passage during this lame duck session. So that's uh, one of the issues we're going to be talking about with Daniel Horowitz coming up right after the news here on AM 1420. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.